What a sweet uh, song that is. Well, before we open up God's Word together this morning, I thought it would be appropriate just to give you a quick uh, overview of what we uh, were able to experience together. Um, and I say together because every church that we uh, uh, attended, and the first time I got up to preach, I brought them greetings from you, from Lakeside Bible Church, who I would not be able to be there if it weren't for you, and uh, all the things that we have learned uh, and, and are, are growing to, to know and appreciate more and more together as a church body. And so wanted to just um, give you some highlights real quick. Uh, somebody said, are you going to share this morning? I said, yeah, but it, it would, we'd be here for a long time if I shared all that uh, was on our hearts. And my wife even uh, forewent, for is that a word, forewent sharing this morning. She wanted to share and decided that's not, don't get me started. You know, <laughs> uh, we could be here all day just talking about the sweet time we had there um, serving the body of Christ and so um, we'll just limit uh, our comments just uh, to a few pictures. And so I'm just going to have them, maybe them throw some pictures up and I'll just comment, them, comment on them. And uh, there you go. That's, uh, that's an African turkey. Okay, no. Um, when we first arrived there, you, you kind of uh, arrive a day or two early just to kind of uh, acclimate, right? You have jet lag and you're kind of in the fog. So they thought taking, taking us to a bird park, right, would be, you know, you can just kind of stare at stuff in the face and you don't have to really be cognitant cognitive what's happening. So we were looking at these pretty birds, and you can imagine, uh, go ahead and just flip through these, um, South Africa, um, little bird park there, maybe want to eat Fruit Loops, um, the old toucan bird, and then uh, let's go to the next picture. So this was the first Sunday we were there. This is Tim and, and Michelle Cantrell. Uh, some of you may know the Cantrells. They originated from uh, Katy Bible Church, and uh, Tim and his wife have been over in South Africa, I think maybe 15 uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 years. He's a graduate of the Master's Seminary. Uh, this is a very special uh, picture because this is their brand new church building that uh, the Lord just provided for them. And uh, their, their, their church is called Antioch Bible Church. And uh, it it's a, uh, 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 has a similar story um, to, to our church as far as how it got its start. And so Tim's just been a faithful guy there for years. And so we had the privilege of preaching there uh, and uh, ministering there, Kelly sang, and um, and so uh, I preached a message on um, uh, the birth of foreign missions. And Tim asked me to preach that because they're having their missions uh, conference uh, coming up this. In fact, this week uh, they're having it, and so it was very surreal preaching about the birth of foreign missions uh, out of Acts chapter thirteen, the story of the church in Antioch, and it's called Antioch Bible Church. So it was kind of fun to make those connections and encourage them to live up to their name uh, as a church. So that was the Sweet Town Fellowship. This is the family uh, that, we, that we stayed with um, uh, when we were there in Praetoria during the, the first conference. And again, we, just, we did three conferences, one in Praetoria, one in Polokwane, and one in Cape Town, which is basically spreading out and hitting the corners uh, of, of the, the nation of, of South Africa. But this was a, a sweet family that... Uh, had tremendous hospitality, and uh, I'm blanking on their, their last name. The Kohlmeyers, thank you. And uh, a, good, a good German Afrikan family, if you will. Um, uh, they grew up in the, a German uh, traditional church there, and God showed them that they weren't truly saved, and, and they came to know Christ. And, and uh, interesting, he works at the BMW factory in South Africa. One of the only, there's one, I guess, in North Carolina, South Carolina and one in uh, South Africa and the rest in Germany. But interesting, this was uh, Karin, his wife, Ernst's wife, and uh, she and Kelly became 
fast friends, and we were just reminded once again, the body of Christ is unlike any other club, organization, team you've ever been a part of. You, you meet people for the first time, and it's like you've known them forever, and uh, you just go deep quick. And uh, it was really a blessing to see them just click and enjoy one another's company. This was the first conference in, in Praetoria. This is uh, Grace Fellowship. This is the church that my friend and fellow graduate of the Master Seminary pastors named Joel James. You'll see a picture of him in a, in a little bit. But this was, uh, again, a group of pastors that we were ministering to. Uh, they were pastors and uh, their wives and, and laymen in the church. And so they just came hungry, uh, ready to be encouraged and, and, and equipped. And so this was on our way to Polokwane. Uh, we were singing Lion King at that moment when the sun was rising. We had to wake up super early in the morning and drive about three hours north and the sun started coming up, and I was like, hey, hey. I started to hear that Lion King movie. This is uh, Quacha and Amanda, and uh, this is a family, another graduate of the Master Seminary from Malawi, who is now uh, going to begin serving at a seminary called Christ Seminary there in Polokwane, training a lot of the, the national guys, the black African guys that are coming from the northern African states um, or countries to be trained and equipped as pastors. So they just got there. They just moved there. This guy on the right here is a pastor in Malawi, and so uh, that other white guy in the picture is Kerry Hardy. He was the other speaker at the conference, and he and his wife, Pam, are, are good friends of Kel and I, and we enjoyed a lot of fellowship with them. So this was in Polokwane. This is now, we're getting ready to uh, head down to Cape Town, so you've got to fly there. It's too far to drive. So um, th- right in the center is uh, Joel and, and Rudy James. That's uh, the guy that invited us to come, and again, he's been pastoring there for 25 years and for 25 years, he's been putting on these conferences, these pastor's conferences. So just a simple, faithful guy, and uh, we just really love and appreciate his ministry, and he's so kind to invite us back. This is the third time that we've been able to be there. So it's fun now because you're starting to get to know people and, and recognize people and build relationships with people, so that's a blessing. So then we're in South Africa. This, is the, uh, this was called um, Everglen Baptist Church. It was a Reformed Baptist Church, and this is where the conference was held down in Cape Town. And uh, while we were there, uh, go ahead to the next slide, uh, we were able to uh, do some fun little things, uh, you know, be the tourist for a, a few minutes, right? And uh, this is Table Mountain, which is the, just it makes uh, Cape Town just a picturesque setting. And so you go up in this gondola and it's, you can see the world from the top of it. Go ahead and go to the next, there's Kellen up top of Table Mountain. That was kind of fun. So that's overlooking the Cape of Good Hope and uh you can see why when the, the settlers came and, you know, came around the bottom of Africa, they were like, hey, this looks like a good place to settle, right? Uh, beautiful spot. Right out in the distance, you can see Robben Island where Nelson Mandela spent, I guess, 27 years imprisoned in that whole apartheid uh, thing. Um, so just an interesting uh, thing. This is Joel and, and Ruth again. And, and again, this is just a picturesque uh, look. Go to the next slide. I was playing around with my panorama. Somebody taught me finally how to use it, so on my camera. But this is, it, it looks like a kind of a European coastal village, doesn't it? Um, but that's South Africa. It's very, very um, influenced by the British and the Dutch. And um, that mountain up in the left-hand corner is called Lion's Head, uh, which is a great landmark there uh, in Cape Town. Next, next picture. And uh, this uh, is a picture across the, 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 the bay of Table Mountain. You can see why they call it Table Mountain. Um, but this guy on our right, his name is Ian Murray, uh, and he is one of the elders at Grace Fellowship, 
and uh, he accompanied with us, accompanied us down to Cape Town, and it kind of served as our tour guide, and he drove us, our, our, our Uber driver, he drove us around everywhere, just a very godly, gracious guy. Next uh, picture, and so he took us to a place called Stellenbosch, which is where one of the main universities is, and this would be a, a, a picture, this is a picture of one of the traditional uh, Dutch Reformed churches, um, and this is, these are the people who founded um, uh, South Africa. Originally, they came down from, from uh, the Netherlands, uh, and they were, uh, it was the Dutch Reformed Church, and so they built all these churches, um, and uh, the ne- ne- next slide, uh, and this is uh, a seminary, an old seminary that they built as well, that we're standing in front of, uh, now liberal, like most um, Ivy League schools started as seminaries in our country, right? It's very liberal. But if you notice, there's a picture of Andrew Murray. This is one of the guys. You might have heard of Andrew Murray. You've read books by Andrew Murray. He was one of the founders of this seminary. In fact, Ian is uh, the great-great-grandson of Ian Murray. So it was kind of cool, the connection there. So we were uh, just talking to him and, of course, how brokenhearted he is to see his historic tradition, you know, being uh, born and raised in sound theology and then that being um, uh, drifting away. Uh, I think that's the last picture. That's right. So it, every time we go there, we learn a little bit more about the culture there in South Africa. And, and just it's a fascinating culture. And I think most of us in America, whenever we hear of South Africa, we think of one thing. What is it? Apartheid, right? I mean, that's typically we equate South Africa with apartheid. That's all we ever heard. At least that's all I ever heard growing up on the news and, and, and things about, about South Africa. And so um, I'm always just curious to find out more about that whole dynamic. And as you know, I think it was 1994 when apartheid ended um, and basically the blacks took over um, the, the, uh, the government and it's been that way ever since. And so now the, the whites are the minority and uh, they're in many ways getting pushed out of the country um, um, many of them uh, are being killed. Uh, the, the boers, the farmers, uh, are you know blacks will just go in and, and, and kill them and take their land uh, because they want to enjoy the prosperity uh, that these white uh, African farmers have enjoyed all these years. And but they don't understand the mindset, the work ethic, and so uh, it's really a sad dynamic. A lot of South Africans are in a uh, white South Africans are in a, a very uh, difficult dilemma. They're considering immigrating, leaving, going to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, because there's really no future for their kids. You remember the affirmative action years ago here in the States, right, where you might have be the most qualified person for a job, uh, but they'll hire somebody of another nationality or color or race, right, just to kind of keep it all equal. That's, well, that's, in South Africa right now, it's affirmative action on steroids, um, that if you're a, a trained white person, um, you may not get a job because you're white. And so just interesting. Uh, so it's an uh, interesting dynamic for the church. Um, they're losing some of their best people uh, because they're just leaving, really not because they want to get out of the, 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 the crime-ridden, uh, very crime-infested uh, nation. Um, uh, but really, the, it's for the future of their kids. They want their kids to be able to have a, a hope and a future. And so... Um, Anyway, the other thing that I found this, that I learned this time I thought was very interesting, it's just a reminder of how important it is to have good theology. <laughs> because all of that apartheid, we would assume was political. It was really theological at the beginning. And uh, the, the, the Dutch Reformed Church um, originally had a very skewed view of creation. Uh, and they actually believed that the blacks were created on the fifth day 
as part of the beasts. And, of course, they were men created on the sixth day. And so this theological divide, they felt very justified in oppressing blacks there in South Africa for all those years. And, and when the Brit, Brits, British came and they drove the, the, uh, the Dutch in, inland, uh, they said, hey, we don't want to cohabitate, co- coexist, I should say, with you guys, so we're going to go inland. Well, they viewed themselves, they, they were very covenantal uh, in their theology, these Dutch Reformed people, and uh, they viewed themselves as the nation of Israel. And uh, they, they viewed South Africa at the time as the promised land. And as they moved north and they came up against all these uh, African tribes, they viewed them as the Canaanites, the Jebusites and the Malachites and all the ites. And so they felt justified in just slaying all of them in the name of God. And they actually prayed, Lord, if you give us victory over these, uh, these tribes, uh, we will establish a nation uh, for you, uh, to honor you. And so there was a, a, a famous war. Uh, it was called the War of Blood River, uh, where they faced the Zulu tribe. And, um, uh, you know, they spiritualized that whole experience. And apparently there was, you know, his, his history says there was, there was angels coming and fighting on their behalf and, and all this kind of stuff that they said they experienced to, to just prove that they were, God was on their side and all that they were doing. And so just very interesting to see how bad theology can lead to some very bad thinking, right? And some really bad acting, um, and, and so really that, that whole uh, situation that they've had to deal with for years now um, was rooted in, in some bad theology. And so all the more reason why we want to make sure we get our theology right so that we uh, think biblically and live biblically. And so, again, uh, those, uh, they're still dealing with the, the consequences of all that now. And so uh, it was just a really um, it's just an exciting place to serve and minister um, because, uh, you know, even today in churches, you know, they have blacks and whites sitting next to each other in churches, black and white pastors were there. And it's neat to see how the body of Christ has tried to bridge that gap as only the body of Christ can do. Amen. And, uh, and so it was really a thrill just to, to interact with these guys and, and, um, and their wives. And, and, uh, we, we were very well received and, and they were very complimentary and, uh, just, uh, and, and of all the messages, um, that I think um, I taught that, and the seminars that I taught that got the best response was, were the ones that weren't just passages that I studied to exposit and preach a message, or ones that I've actually lived through and experienced. And uh, uh, right, surprise, surprise, the, 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 the things that make you most useful to the Lord are the things that oftentimes are the most painful to go through uh, at the time, right? But then the Lord uses it later on to, to be a blessing um, to others. And so uh, last week or two weeks ago, I, I, uh, I guess it was three weeks ago now, um, it's been a long time and I'm still kind of fog brain. So forgive anything I say that's not, doesn't make any sense, okay? Um, but uh, we start, I, I preached a message or started preaching a message before I left called When People Throw Stones, Courage in the Face of Criticism. I told you I was most excited about uh, teaching this particular seminar uh, with, with the pastors. And sure enough, this was the one I think that, that uh, was most well-received. And so I want to uh, finish it up this morning. Lord willing, we have time to do that. But uh, take your Bibles and turn to uh, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 16. And we were looking at the story of David and Shimei. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 5, let me just reread this story so it's fresh in our minds, and then we'll get back into uh, what we can learn about dealing with criticism from this account. 2 Samuel 16, 5, when King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. And behold, you're taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruai said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. I like that guy. But the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son who came out from the, me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my afflictions and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. Father, as we return to this very helpful passage, would you illuminate our minds by your spirit? to understand what is here and how it applies to our lives, our situation today. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for the way uh, we saw this text really minister to and encourage um, and comfort uh, so many pastors and their wives um, there in South Africa. And I pray it would have the same impact uh, in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we were talking about uh, three weeks ago how Receiving and benefiting from criticism is utterly essential to not just survive, but thrive in Christian life and ministry. And, and criticism is an inescapable reality for anyone in uh, leadership, particularly pastors. The very nature of our job uh, invites criticism. And uh, sadly, uh, if you ask most pastors, they would tell you that uh, criticism is probably their greatest challenge that they face in ministry. It's the number one reason uh, that so many end up resigning from the ministry. And I'm not talking about constructive criticism. I'm talking about destructive criticism. And we said there's basically two types, right? Two types of criticism. There's constructive criticism, which is warranted and welcome because it's helpful, it's productive. And uh, you know that the constructive critic loves you, cares about you, he's gracious, well-intentioned, they sincerely want, to, sincerely want to help you. The things they say are true, uh, and, and, do, and do require changes in your life because they're pointing out maybe sinful attitudes, blind spots, um, imbalances. And so we should thank God for those who love us enough to speak the truth to us and, uh, and, and so we can change and grow to be more like Christ. Now, that's not the kind of criticism that David was dealing with in this passage. It's not the kind of criticism that I wanted to address with the pastors in South Africa. It's, it's this other kind of criticism, destructive criticism which is unwarranted, unwanted, because it's unhelpful, it's unproductive. And the destructive critic doesn't love us, they hate us, and care only about themselves, and they're malicious and mean-spirited and simply want to hurt us. 
And the things they say to us or about us are untrue and they require no changes in our lives. Um, why? Because their goal is not to build us up, but to bring us down and ruin us and make our life not better, but worse. And even so, we should thank God for those who hate us enough to spread vindictive, scandalous lies behind our backs because no matter how evil intended they may be, God intends it for our good and will use it specifically to change and to grow us more into the likeness of Christ. And so what are we to do? How are we to respond when we are ruthlessly and relentlessly criticized? Well, David uh, is a great example for us here. And God has used his example um, in how he graciously responded to a ruthless critic and courageously persevered in the midst of relentless criticism. And we can go to school on him and and notice uh, here in this text six ways, not just to survive, but to thrive when facing criticism of the worst kind. And we got only to number one last time. Uh, Remember, it could always be worse, right? That was the first thing we learned from this story. Remember, it could always be worse. And uh, David was fleeing from his son Absalom, who was um, uh, rebelling against him and leading a coup against him. And so David had to flee uh, Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continual as he came. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people, all the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you men of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. Behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. And so here as David was uh, fleeing Jerusalem, he had to go through a, a town named Baharim where there was a guy named Shimei, uh, who was a crazy, disenchanted, disaffected fellow Israelite who had a personal vendetta against David um, because he felt like he uh, and his family had been seriously wronged by something that David had done or hadn't done. Uh, um, and so this was his opportunity to get his pound of flesh. And so he, he begins to curse him and throw stones at him And, of course, what he was saying was wildly inaccurate and totally inappropriate. Here was the man after God's own heart, and he's claiming that he's a worthless fellow. And um, ultimately, the accusation he's making against him is that he was responsible for the death of Saul and his family. He was a man of bloodshed. And that he was simply um, getting what he deserved. Um, That what goes around, or what comes around, goes around, right? Or goes around, comes around. And uh, he was reaping what he sowed. And like any harsh criticism, there's always just enough truth, right? Even if it's a false accusation, there's always just enough truth to make it sting. And uh, because David knew that while he was blameless of these accusations, there was a whole lot worse things he was guilty of. And uh, in fact, Nathan had told him because of what he did, he committed adultery and then he murdered Bathsheba's husband to hide the fact that she was pregnant with his child, uh, that he was going to be punished and he, there was going to be consequences. And uh, it, that not only the, the nation would be affected, but his own family would be affected. And that uh, the things that he had done uh, in secret would be done in broad daylight by his own children. 
And so David knew it could have been worse. He didn't say anything about the fact that he was an adulterer and a murderer. And uh, there was a whole lot worse things he could have said than these imagined sins that he was being accused of. He he deserved much worse. Um, And then we ended uh, last time with this classic quote from C.H. Spurgeon. If If anyone thinks ill of you, do not be angry with them, for you are worse than he thinks you to be, right? You're actually worse than he thinks you are. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few darker touches, and it would be still nearer the truth. And so David understood, as we need to understand, that it, it could always be worse. It could always be worse. And so that's helpful. It gives you, kind of helps us maintain perspective when we're being falsely accused of things. But let's move on now and, and see if we can get through the, the, the remaining uh, points here that we uh, laid out there in the outline. Number two, okay, refuse to defend yourself or to retaliate. Refuse to defend yourself or to retaliate. Now, I'll, I'll give Shimeon, Shimei, excuse me, Shimei one credit here. This guy has some guts. Or he was really stupid. I'm not sure if it was, it was, if it was bravery or stupidity. But he was defying the reigning king who was at that moment surrounded by his mighty men. Notice verse 6. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. This was the mighty men were David's bodyguard. They were, they were, they were the original SEAL Team 6, if you will. Okay, the, the, these, these guys' military exploits were stuff of legend. Like when they broke through enemy lines uh, and snuck into the city of, uh, of Bethlehem under the cover of night, snuck past the Philistines just to bring back a drink of water from David's hometown well. Remember that? He said, man, if I could just have a drink, I'd love to have a drink for my... And they're like, hey, Dave wants a drink, let's go do it. And they went in there and they got it, risked their life to bring back the drink. And, and when he got the drink, what did he do? Remember, he poured it out to honor them for their sacrifice, putting their life on the line just to give him a drink of water from his favorite well. And it just showed the loyalty that these guys shared uh, for or towards one another. Now, one of the commanders of the mighty men was Abishai, verse 9. And uh, in the annals of the mighty men, Abishai was memorialized for single-handedly killing 300 men with just a spear. You can see that in 2 Samuel 28. He was the brother of Joab. That's a familiar name, I'm sure. The commander of the armies of Israel. They were both David's nephews, the sons of his sister Zeruiah. They were both valiant warriors, fiercely loyal to David, but they had a reputation for reacting impetuously. For instance, Abishai was the one who wanted to spear Saul to death in his sleep. Remember, David came upon Saul in his sleep and his, his spear was right next to his head, stuck in the ground. And Abishai said, David, let me take that thing and run that thing through his skull. The Lord has given you this man into your hands. And uh, David forbid him to touch the Lord's anointing. Well, on this occasion, Abishai wanted to decapitate Shimei but he, because he was cursing the Lord's anointed. Verse 9, then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. This must have been flattering for David. 
right? That you've got someone so willing to defend your, you and, and jump in the fray to vindicate you. But David called him off. Even though Shimei actually deserved to die for cursing him. It was, this was against the law, Exodus twenty two twenty eight 28, to, to curse the, the, the Lord's anointed. See, David knew that God hadn't given him what he deserved, right? We, we know he, we said it last time, he deserved to die twice. He, he should have been stoned twice. And by the fact that, that Shimei was throwing stones, this was his way of symbolically stoning him. Um, that that's what he deserved. David knew that he didn't get what he deserved, and he wanted to extend that same mercy and kindness to Shimei. And by the way, this wasn't the only time that David saved Shimei's life. When you can read ahead in, in uh, 2 Samuel 19, when Absalom's coup failed, and he was killed by Joab, and David was restored to the throne, Shimei came groveling back to to David and confessed his sin, repented of falsely accusing David, and David once again responded with grace and rebuked Abishai, who still wanted to cut his head off, um, and uh, he pardoned Shimei. And uh, interesting how the story ends. Before David died, he counseled his son Solomon to deal with Shimei wisely and uh, basically said, hey, keep this guy. This guy's a shifty little fella. Uh, keep him on a short leash. Keep your eye on this guy because you never know what he's going to do. And, uh, and, he, and he told him, don't let him go unpunished. And eventually, Shimei stepped out of bounds, and uh, Solomon had him executed. The point is, David could have immediately retaliated with deadly force. But rather than get defensive or get revenge, David had, to, had the faith to believe that God would eventually right all wrongs and repay those who had mistreated him. Look back at um, 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3. This was after Joab and, and uh, Abishai, these brothers in crime, killed Abner, who was the, the, uh, the leader of Saul's armies. And uh, David had told him not to. He didn't want anything to do with it. But notice what he says here in 2 Samuel 3 verse 39. He says, may the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. In other words, David was confident that the Lord would take his vengeance in his way and in his time. And that's why he told Abishai back in 2 Samuel 16, why should, or excuse me, uh, what, I, what do I have to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? In other words, I... I oh, why do I have to deal with you guys all the time? What's up with you guys? I, don't, I, don't, I feel so loyal, but unlike you in so many ways. We're not as like-minded as I, as I would hope or wish. But notice, we're familiar with this principle. Don't, don't retaliate, or you know, what we're talking about here is don't defend yourself, don't retaliate. Uh, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, Paul gave us some very clear instruction when it comes to dealing with others who are not being kind to us or being evil towards us, Romans chapter 12, verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 35, which I'm sure David knew. 
Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If you're thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. In other words, kill your enemy with kindness. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, Paul, uh, Paul's own example, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate rather than to retaliate. And then he instructed Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so again, David is modeling for us all these New Testament principles of not being defensive and not retaliating. One of my favorite books that I've ever read is um, by C.H. Spurgeon called Lectures to My Students. And this, these are just chapters um, that were lectures that he gave to his pastor's college that he had, training young men for the ministry. And uh, my favorite chapter in that book is called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And what Spurgeon was counseling his, these young up-and-coming pastors, these pastors to be, is, hey, you know, you're going to hear a lot of things, you're going to see a lot of things, and, and sometimes the best thing to do is just not see it and not hear it. Apply a deaf ear and a blind eye to that criticism. Let me read for you what he said here regarding false accusations. He says, in the case of false reports against yourself, for the most part, use a deaf ear. Unfortunately, liars are not yet extinct. And like Richard Baxter and John Bunyan, you may be accused of crimes which your soul abhors. Be not staggered thereby, for this trial has befallen the very best of men. And even your Lord did not escape the envenomed tongue of falsehood. In almost all cases, it is the wisest course to let such things die a natural death. A great lie, if unnoticed, is like a big fish out of water. It dashes and plunges and beats itself to death in a short time. To answer it is to simply supply it with its element and help it to a longer life. Falsehood usually carries their own refutation somewhere about them and sting themselves to death. Some lies especially have a peculiar smell which betrays their rottenness to every honest nose. If you're disturbed by them, the object of their intention is partly answered, but your silent endurance disappoints malice and gives you a partial victory, which God, in his care of you, will soon turn into a complete deliverance. Your blameless life will be your best defense, and those who have seen it will not allow you to be condemned so readily as your slanders expect. Only, obtain, oh, excuse me, only abstain from fighting your own battles, and in nine cases out of ten, your accusers will gain nothing by their malevolence but chagrin for themselves and contempt from others. To prosecute the slander is very seldom wise. Standing as we do in a position which makes us choice targets for the devil and his alloys, our best course is to defend our innocence by our silence and leave our reputation with God. And that is like timely advice, isn't it? Defend your innocence by your silence and leave your reputation with God. Now, you know as well as I do, in our day and age, not responding to your critics is not excuse me, is considered an admission of guilt, right? Not responding to your critics 
is not an admission of guilt, but an act of faith. It's an act of faith that God will vindicate us in his way and in his time, either in this life or the next. God and not our accusers will have the last word. And so, therefore, we should not be defensive or try to retaliate. Now, having said all that, there may be a time when it is necessary and appropriate to defend yourself. Remember, Spurgeon said nine out of ten, right? There may be that one time, that rare occasion, like when Paul defended himself against false teachers who were undermining his ministry in the church in Corinth by making false accusations about him. And you can see in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 8, where he was put in a position that he, he didn't want to be. He said, I feel like a, a fool even doing this, but I feel like I have to say something. And so there may be a, a, an occasion uh, for you to have to defend yourself. Now, again, it's a difficult dilemma to know which path to take um, because the Proverbs say, in Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be just like him. But then the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, so he won't be wise in his own eyes. Like, which is it? That's that's why that's wisdom literature, right? It takes wisdom to discern which would be the appropriate stance. But in nine times out of ten, I think... The best response, with Spur- I agree with Spurgeon, is to refuse to defend yourself or to retaliate. Number three, receive criticism as from God's sovereign hand. Receive criticism as from God's sovereign hand. Again, back in, in uh, 2 Samuel 16, uh, I love this, what, what David says here. 2 Samuel 16, uh, verse 10 If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Now this is a truly astounding response from David to Shimei's criticism, especially in light of his violent reaction for the uncalled for criticism of Nabal back in 1 Samuel chapter 25, uh, whose wife Abigail had to talk David out of slaughtering her husband and all of his men. Remember that? Nabal was like, well, David asked for some help. He says, who's this David guy? I don't know this guy anything. And David's like, okay, boys, let's go. Strap on your swords. And they were going to go and wipe out Nabal and and his family. Here, in this case, David showed far more patience and restraint, and I think it was because of, uh, as a result of his recent sin and repentance, that he had a much more humble, broken, and contrite heart. Psalm 51, right, happened um, somewhere in between this. He had been confronted about his sin. He had repented of his sin, and he was much more broken and contrite in his attitude. And so instead of being provoked by Shimei's reproach, he initially suggested that perhaps God had told Shimei to curse him. But then he goes even further and affirms that God was definitely using Shimei's curses to reprove and humble and break him even more. The Lord has told him, let him alone. 
Let him curse. The Lord has told him to curse. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this, said this, quote, a humble, tender spirit will turn reproaches into reproofs and so gets good by them instead of being provoked by them. The scourge of the tongue is God's rod. In other words, God's rod of chastening. So if that's the case, then let the tongues of the Shimeis curse all they want. Because even though they may have bad motives and bad intel, in other words, they haven't done their homework, they're just hearing one side of the story and they're, they're blabbing their mouth anyway, right? God has sovereignly ordained that we should face their criticism, which is ultimately for his glory and our good. Romans eight twenty eight, right? God works all things together for good. God providentially uses evil people and evil put-downs to accomplish good purposes in our lives, ultimately to make us more like Christ. What Shimei meant for evil, God meant for what? For good, right? Genesis 50, 20. So as mean and nasty as Shimei was, he was unwittingly doing David good. Now that's why I think we should be able to look at our cruelest critic straight in the eye and say, thank you. Thank you for all the bad things that you've said to me or about me because God has used it and is using it to make me more like Jesus. Thank you. Besides, David's real crisis here and heartache was, was that his own son was out to kill him. And Shimei's criticism was, was trivial compared to that. That's what he meant by my own son. Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. So who cares if this guy's cursing me? That's, that's nothing. And so he says, let's, let's let, let him curse. Let, let, him, let him curse. Which was an expression of David's submission to an acceptance of God's sovereign will for his life. Look at the previous chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 26. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am, let him, capital H, talking about God, let God do to me as seems good to him. Let, let God do to me what seems good to him. This doesn't seem good to me. I'll just let you know, go on the record, this does not seem good to me, okay? I'm sure, I'm, not, I'm sure David was not saying, hey, this is a good thing, this is exciting, I'm so happy this is happening to me, right? But his core conviction was, hey, let God do what seems good to him, even if it doesn't seem good to me. See, bottom line is David may have lost his throne to his son, but he was convinced that God was still seated on his throne. And he was sovereignly reigning over all things. God has told him, let him curse. So, Receive criticism as from God's sovereign hand. God is in this. He's ordained this for your life for a reason. Number four, rest in God's goodness and mercy. Rest in God's goodness and mercy. Notice verse 12. Perhaps, David said, the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So a lot of what David knew about God's goodness and mercy, he was hopeful that the cursing from Shimei would somehow backfire and result in some sort of blessing from God. Remember Balaam's curse? The enemies of Israel hired Balaam to, to, curse, uh, to curse Israel, and every time he opened up his mouth, 
wanting to curse them, a blessing came out. And so David was resting in God's goodness and mercy, and, and, and he was confident that, you know what? I know somehow there's, there's, there's a silver lining to this thing, that God's going to use this for blessing and for good in my life. Speaking from experience, I can share with you some of the, the blessings I've received from God as a result of the criticism I've received from people. You probably have, could come up with a similar list as this, but number one, God has blessed me with a better understanding of his word. I don't think I would ever, I've read this story many times in my life, but it's never had this rich meaning and application as, as it does now. And so I, I just, I feel like God has given me a better understanding of his word. Number two, God has blessed me with a greater dependence on him in prayer. I mean, you can't go through times of destructive criticism without falling on your knees and falling on your face before the Lord and just saying, Lord, help. I need your help. I need your wisdom. Give me direction. And so it, it drives you to prayer, which is, a, which is a good thing. Number three, God has blessed me with a stronger passion for purity and integrity. And when people are coming coming after you to bring you down and, and to you know, try to find anything in your life that they can, they can point to to show that you're not above reproach. And, and uh, man, it makes you like Daniel, want to be like Daniel, right? Who, who the only thing they could find wrong or to accuse him of was the fact that he prayed three times a day. I mean, they went through his life with a fine-tooth comb, those guys back in, in, in Babylon, and, 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 uh, um, and, and they couldn't find anything. So it's just, it, just, it just makes you want to be pure and holy and, and be a man of integrity that somebody could go through your life with a fine-tooth comb and they wouldn't find a thing. Number four, God has blessed me with a deeper sympathy and empathy for others. I feel like I can sit across my desk now with, with, with you folks in our church who are going through similar difficult seasons and I'm much more empathetic, uh, more sympathetic, um, Boy, I felt like I could relate to a whole lot better to the pastors in South Africa. And, and kind of, it took, took my ministry to them to a whole new level. And so that's a good thing, right? That's a blessing. And then lastly, God has blessed me with a fuller appreciation for persecution. A fuller appreciation for persecution. Now, I'm not about to put myself in the same category of those people that we read about and we pray for. Uh, who are part of the persecuted church, right? We learn about these guys through Voice of the Martyrs and, and uh, Operation uh, Andrew and, and uh, Open Doors Ministry and, and uh, these people that are putting their lives on the line. Literally, they, they could die for committing their lives to Christ or preaching the gospel. Um, but Jesus did say that we should rejoice and consider ourselves blessed whenever we're brutally persecuted uh, or viciously maligned. Again, you're familiar with these verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Luke repeats this. Uh, Jesus' words, Luke 6, 22 Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. 
Then he goes on and says this, verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. In other words, if, 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 if people are only and always saying good things about you, maybe it's because you're not being who you should be. That's more like a false prophet, right? That everybody likes you and is always patting you on the back and never has anything negative to say about you. And then he says this, verse 27, Jesus says, I say to you who here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So criticism is a powerful, beautiful opportunity to love your enemy and be a blessing to them just like Jesus commanded and also just like Jesus modeled. You remember in Luke chapter 23 when Jesus was on the cross and they were saying all sorts of things about him that weren't true and doing all sorts of mean things to him. Remember how he responded? Father, what? Forgive them for they know not what they do. And so rather than feeling like we are at the mercy of our critics, when we are called to suffer according to the will of God, we can entrust ourselves into the just and merciful hands of the Lord and rest assured that he will do more than just take care of us, but he will richly bless us. I love 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests in you. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So, rest in God's goodness and mercy and look for the blessing in it. Number five, remain steadfast and stay the course. Remain steadfast and stay the course. Look at verse 13. Again, back in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 16, verse 13. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him, and he went, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. Now you would think that after David had shown Shimei such grace and mercy, that this guy would just go home and rethink his life, right? I mean, he would just at least calm down, back off. But the abusive attacks didn't let up which revealed how bitter and angry and vengeful Shimei really was. And rather than sending him a cease and desist letter, which is so common in our day, right? David and his men just kept right on walking. As Shimei kept right on cursing and throwing stones, and now he's throwing dirt at him too. See, sometimes no matter how kindly and tenderly and graciously you respond, your critics may continue to be ruthless and relentless. 
And like David, we must keep plodding on and remain undistracted and undaunted by the pesty, persistent criticism. Years ago, I came across this great anonymous quote that I've read a lot in recent years. Why? Because I needed a, a much-needed boost to faithfully forge ahead in life and ministry despite what others may be saying or doing to us. Listen to what it says. Stick with your work. Do not flinch because the lion roars. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not fool away your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Do your work. Let the liars lie. Let sectarians quarrel. Let critics malign. Let enemies accuse. Let the devil do his, be- do, excuse me, do his worst. But see to it, nothing hinders you from fulfilling with joy the work God has given you. He's not commanded you to be admired or esteemed. He's not never bidden you to defend your character. He has not set you at work to contradict falsehood about yourself, which Satan's or God's servants may start to peddle or to track down every rumor that threatens your reputation. If you do these things, you will do nothing else. You'll be at work for yourself and not for the Lord. Keep at your work. Let your aim be as steady as a star. You may be assaulted, wronged, insulted, slandered, wounded, and rejected, misunderstood, or assigned impure motives. You may be abused by foes, forsaken by friends, and despised and rejected of men. But see to it with steadfast determination, with unfaltering zeal, that you pursue the great purpose of your life and object of your being until at last you can say, I have finished the work which thou hast given me to do. That's good, isn't it? Very helpful. So remain steadfast and stay the course. And then lastly, number six, is refresh yourself in God and his word, okay? In the midst of criticism of the worst kind, the destructive criticism we're talking about, refresh yourself in God and his word. Notice verse 14. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary. And he refreshed himself there. So we can only imagine, right, by the time that David and his entourage finally arrived at their destination, they were physically and emotionally exhausted. I mean, this kind of stuff just just wears you down mentally and emotionally. And their refreshment, I'm sure, came from drinking some water, eating some food, enjoying the camaraderie that they enjoyed with one another, the mighty men and David, and then sleep. They probably just crashed, which is one of the things they needed was just some some good sleep, some good rest. Which, by the way, that might be true of us as well, right? I mean, when Elijah was running from Jezebel and was so scared and disillusioned at the time, he just... He just said, God, just kill me. I don't want to be killed by Jezebel. She's after me, and just, just kill me. And, and, and uh, basically, God said, hey, just relax. Put him to sleep. <laughs> gave him a nap. He woke up. He gave him something to eat. He just needed to be physically refreshed. And sometimes when we're in these kinds of situations, we don't take good care of ourselves. We don't rest well. We don't eat right, right? So that's, I think we can learn from that. But mainly, I think our refreshment comes through feeding on and drinking in and resting in God's word. Calvin said said it this, this way. 
No man will ever bear the insults of the devil and the wicked with calm moderation unless he turns his thoughts from them and toward God alone. And there's no better way to turn our thoughts toward God than to spend time in his word. And there's no better place in God's word to turn to whenever we are facing disturbing threats and attacks from angry, spiteful people than the Psalms, especially those that David wrote during the Shimei seasons of his life. For example, Psalm 3. Turn there just quickly. I want you to see something. Psalm 3. And sometimes we're helped by these little titles in the Psalms. Psalm 3 says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. But what was David doing when he encountered Shimei, he was fleeing, right, from Absalom, his son. So how encouraging and comforting is this psalm for us? O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. It's essentially what Shimei was saying. Hey, God's punishing you. God's judging you. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. You're the one who shields me from this, not just the stones that this guy's whipping at me, but the slander he's spewing at me. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I laid down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me around about me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have been smitten, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. You know what? Sometimes the best thing you can do when you're being criticized unjustly, unfairly, wrongly accused, go to bed. (laughs) Just go to sleep. Essentially what David did, he, he, he got to his next destination, had something to eat, hung out with the boys, and pillowed his head for the night. Why? Because he was resting in God and his word, some of which he actually wrote himself. And that's why I think this is so instructive, whether David was aware of it or not, everyone who knew him was watching to see how the man after God's own heart who had penned psalms like these would respond to the difficult trials that God had providentially prescribed for his life. And we need to remember that, especially as pastors, right? We need to be aware that those we preach to and minister to are watching to see how we respond to difficult problems and difficult people that God places in our lives. Because they're always telling us what we should do. Well, let's see how they do. And I love this quote from John Newton in a letter that he wrote to a fellow minister whose wife was on the verge of death. This is what John Newton said. How often we have told our hearers that our all-sufficient and faithful Lord can and will make good every want and loss. How often have we spoken of the light of his countenance as a full compensation for every suffering and that the trials of the present life are not worthy to be compared with the exceeding abundant and eternal weight of glory to which, we, to which they are leading. 
We must not therefore wonder if we, as pastors, as he's saying, are sometimes called to exemplify the power of what we have said and to show our people that we've not set before them unfelt truths, which we've learned from books and men only. And then he gave them this closing challenge. He said, you are now in a post of honor and many eyes are upon you. May the Lord enable you to glorify him and to encourage them by your exemplary submission to his will. That applies to you as a husband. Your wife is watching how you respond to that unfair criticism that you're receiving. Your kids are watching. Moms, right, how you're dealing with harsh treatment from someone else. Your kids are watching how you're responding. The other people at your work, at your school, they're, they're watching you. They know you're a Christian. They're, they're, they're wanting to see how you respond. And you are at a post of honor. And may you, may God enable you to, to glorify him and to encourage them by your exemplary submission to his will. And that's what I love so much about the example of David here in 2 Samuel chapter 16 was his exemplary submission to the will of God. And so David is a great example for us to follow, but we know that he is ultimately just an Old Testament type or picture of Jesus who set the best example for us to follow. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, after the writer got done describing all the great acts of faith, Hebrews 11 in that hall of faith, all these guys did this, 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 and now you're surrounded by such a great cloud of examples or witnesses. Keep your eyes on David. No, that's not what it says. Keep your eyes on what? Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. See, David's life and ministry simply foreshadowed Christ's life and ministry. And like David, Christ was chosen and anointed by God to reign as king, but he was despised and rejected by his own people and had to flee for his life. In fact, one commentary I found it very interesting called David's escape from Absalom across the Kidron Valley. He went across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, up over the hill to uh, Baharim. They called that or likened that to David's Via Dolorosa, his way of sorrow, which anticipated the path that Jesus would walk on his way to the cross. You know this, that throughout Christ's entire ministry, he was falsely accused and ruthlessly and relentlessly slandered. His steps were dogged by all sorts of vicious rumors and fabricated uh, scandals. He was reviled as an Ill Ill illegitimate child born out of wedlock. That was, their, that was their trump card every time. They loved to bring that up. The, the false teachers, the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, oh, you, you're a bastard, is basically what they said. He was vilified as a, as a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. He was discredited as being demon-possessed. He was dismissed as, as, as having lost his mind. He's a crazy man. Don't listen to him. He's insane. His good name was destroyed and his blameless reputation was desecrated throughout the entire nation. 
He knew what it was like to be conspired against, to be betrayed by a close associate. And you remember this, when they came to arrest him in the garden, one of his loyal followers, Peter, tried to defend him by taking off the head of one of the soldiers that was coming and he missed and he hit, what? He hit his ear, cut, chopped off his ear. And Jesus, just like David, told him to relax. Put your sword away, man. Don't you realize I could call 72,000 angels to come defend me if I wanted to? He was silent before his accusers like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers so he did not open his mouth. And in the midst of all this unwarranted and undeserved verbal and physical abuse, he humbly and meekly submitted himself to the sovereign will of God and did not resist or retaliate even when the men who were criticizing him ended up crucifying him. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor for the sake of conscience toward God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So you may be in a position where you are being treated unreasonably and unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And here it is, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Joel Beakey, who is the president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, recently taught on the subject of faithfulness in coping with criticism at this recent Shepherds Conference that we went back to in March. And uh, it was such a good message. I asked him if he could send me his notes, and he did. He sent me his manuscript, which was very helpful in preparing this uh, for our time in South Africa. But this was the one quote I pulled from his manuscript. He said, if Christ, being holy, harmless, undefiled, was maligned, falsely, accused, scourged, crowned with thorns, mocked, struck in the face, spat upon, mocked, rejected, and crucified, what can we imperfect people expect? Once we understand that no matter how much we are criticized, we are never criticized as much as we deserve. Even if we are innocent of the accusation leveled against us, we can turn to Christ and be amazed at what abuse he endured to deliver us from all the bonds of unjust criticism. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for critics, which are gifts sent from you to guard us from self-righteous attitudes and self-sufficient routines and self-seeking hearts and self-destructive tendencies Lord, I pray that you would use our critics to make us more humble, more dependent on you, to break us from craving man's approval and 
Keep us from exalting ourselves and building our own kingdoms. Help us to stay focused on Jesus, who is criticized far more ruthlessly and relentlessly than we ever will be, but who never deserved it. And so we make, may we consider ourselves truly blessed whenever people curse us and lie about us and seek to destroy our reputation because we know it is then that we are most like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully that was helpful for you as it was for me. Um, thank you for the opportunity to work that through in my own mind and my heart by writing a sermon uh, to preach to you first that I could then take and minister to people halfway around the world. I really, really appreciate that. Well, again, thank you for being here today. If you're visiting with us, again, don't uh, forget to stop by our welcome desk out here, and we'd love to meet you and love to get that card from you. And uh, again, don't forget to stay after if you can to help set up for kids camp and be praying that the Lord would just really use uh, this ministry outreach to accomplish his purposes um, in our lives and in the life of our community this week. All right, you're dismissed. Have a great week.